we've got a special episode of City National Bank's Justin DeFronte will be sitting in the host chair and will be speaking with Lago Innovation Fund Managing Director Kevin Park about some ways founders can successfully navigate the needs for attaining capital without throwing away their control, especially in this inflationary environment. But before we get started, I did want to thank our sponsor, who is City National Bank. City National's Food and Beverage Group combines financial expertise with an insider's understanding of opportunities, challenges, and trends. They get in the fields to manufacturing plants and the warehouses to discover what their clients face day in and day out, because they're more than just transactions. They get out from behind the desk and into their client's world. From processing and manufacturing to production and distribution, they'll provide you with the solutions and advice you need to achieve your strategic financial objectives. And for more information, you can visit cmb.com slash food and beverage or follow the link in the description of this episode. So with that out of the way, Justin, why don't you introduce yourself and get the conversation started? Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Hello, my name is Justin DeFronte, and I'm a member of City National Bank's Food and Beverage Group. We support middle market companies with growth capital for acquisitions and new projects, and and that includes working capital, real estate, and lending based on enterprise value and cash flow. We are a business unit of Royal Bank of Canada, and we're Happy to be on the Food Institute podcast uh, today to uh, to introduce and speak a little bit with uh, Kevin Park. Kevin? Hi there. Um, my name is Kevin Park. I'm the um, I'm a managing director at Lago Innovation Fund. We're a equity and debt fund that invests in high growth consumer companies. Um, I was also uh, the founder of Simple Fitch Ventures, which is a venture fund and advisory firm um, investing and advising um, early stage consumer companies. I've been involved in uh, numerous um, food deals, including uh, Kinder's, which is a seasonings business, Press Juicery, uh, Stickies, which is a uh, chicken fingers QSR, Bare Bones, which is a bone broth company, uh, Crunchy's Food. Um, on the Lago side, we are uh, investors in um, in Koya and um, other numerous um, food investments. So just happy to be here and offer you know my insights. Kevin, you truly have the entrepreneurial spirit. You've been through transactions in the food space. You've supported other entrepreneurs in their growth venture and their journey. And I think many entrepreneurs would say that the purpose of being an entrepreneur is making your own living and setting your own way. How can founders maintain control of their company as they continue to grow their business and execute on their strategy. Yeah, I think it stems from uh, you know the basic concept of um, when you look in the space is are there categories or areas where the consumer needs are not being met either from a quality standpoint, um, a product standpoint, or a value standpoint, or all of the above. So when an entrepreneur truly feels that there is a need that's not being met, you know, that entrepreneur has a certain motivation to fill that need. And to fill that need, um, in order to fill that need, um, that they're willing to kind of take that journey. And I guess one of the key principles is, um, can this entrepreneur actually um, come up with a viable business model that fundamentally they can grow uh, without the need of outside capital. So that's where I would really kind of be the step one, because I think the general um, 
reaction when someone has an idea is like, hey, I need to go raise money. But theoretically, if, if the person could never raise money, would they still be willing to launch the business and grow and 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 um, be dedicated to it and um, be committed to growing it? Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, I, as a lender in the middle market for food companies, I can say that a leader's ability to demonstrate his or her control of the ownership structure and the the strategy of the of the enterprise, it's it's very important uh, from a lender's perspective because it provides confidence to a lender that there is support from ownership and especially founders who uh, who, who 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 know uh, what they wanted to accomplish from the beginning, right? Yeah, and I think that's um, you know what when you look at it from a lender perspective, um, it's almost the opposite of what people might think. People might think, well, we want to back companies that are um, you know backed by a private equity firm or have a lot of capital behind, support behind them. Uh, but the reality is, I think the strong uh, the um, the stronger companies are the ones that are not backed, but because those entrepreneurs have uh, have committed and I guess sacrificed so much to get their business to a certain point, um, they're much uh, less willing, I found in in from prior experience to um, to give up during the difficult times. And I've seen that on funds as well, because even if you're fund backed, you know, the funds have a portfolio of companies and they have to make decisions on where should they allocate their capital. Yes, the commitment of the founder definitely resonates with with a lender and and with a leadership team. Kevin, how can entrepreneurs successfully navigate this this kind of changing economy that we're facing now um, to find capital if there's that commitment from the entrepreneur, from the founder, uh, but but yet yet a need for working capital and growth capital to support and execute on the growth strategy of the committed entrepreneur? Yeah, I think there's a couple um, ways that the, that he or she can show that. I think the first is, especially during this um, this time of kind of economic turmoil, that the business can stand on its own. It doesn't have to be currently, but the, that it could. So if a company is at a certain uh, growth path, um, that expenses are being managed, cash is being managed, that even in a downturn, this company can survive without capital. Yeah, whether, that, yes, that whether, resonates. Yeah, whether it's, you know, in terms of um, cutting certain costs, um, cutting certain product lines out, you know, focusing on the higher margin, higher turn products. Uh, because I think that, especially in these times, uh, they need to realize that even if the company is growing or if the company is not profitable, there's no guaranteed exits, right? So even if you come accomplish a certain growth rate, I feel that that is a lot different now than it was before when, when that was a driving factor um, of a company's valuation. Yes. From a, from a lenders, a bank's perspective, I can say that a credit officer of a bank, when reviewing a new opportunity to support a new entrepreneur, a new business, um, or a business that's even aged for a few years and has growth, 
that credit officer will spend a lot of time digging in and reviewing the projections provided by the founder and management. And in this higher interest rate environment, we can see, you can literally see the cash being absorbed by the additional interest expense from a loan and potential margin tightening from rising labor costs or um, fluctuations in the gross margin of uh, product pricing and input costs. So um, a word a word about those projections and how you feel about your modeling for the future. It's very important to, to have a high comfort level in what you've laid out for your potential investors, both from an equity and debt perspective. Right, and it goes back to you know the first point that I made in terms of filling a, a need and a void in the marketplace. So if your product is truly needed and the customers truly love it, you will find the customers who will give you the terms, help you out with your cash flow situation. You will have other partners, whether it's a marketing firm or your 3PL. If they truly believe in the work that you're putting and the progress you're making, um, you know, they'll become partners. And, um, and they understand that you know, that they believe that your your brand or your product will um, will grow in the long term. So I think that's probably one of the things that um, a lot of the companies should be looking at in terms of, you know, turning to your partners to see who can help you out. Because obviously during good times when your business is growing and you have capital, you know, everyone's everyone's your friend and partner. But I think it's really during these down uh, these downturns where you really realize who your true partners are, including banks. Yep, that's the truth. Kevin, you mentioned the term long-term. You said long-term. How important is it for entrepreneurs to play a longer-term game now when it comes to financing and, and protecting their brands through a potential or uh, real-time downturn? Yeah, I think the, you know, the long-term game, and we're doing this with a, a few of our companies right now, is, you know, Really managing the growth, we um, I I implement this uh, thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. So a rule of forty. So what what we do is we say um, the sales growth plus the EBITDA percentage should equal four should equal or be above forty. Um, and for example, if you are a high growth business, but in this environment maybe your maximum growth rate should be 40 and your, you know, your EBITDA be at least break even, right? If you are a later stage company, um, your, your sales growth might be 20%, which means your EBITDA target should be 20. And it's one of those kind of simple rules that we implement where um, even though you have the opportunity to grow at a much faster rate, um, you want to slow things down and conserve your cash. And, and um, you know, if you look at the long-term strategy, um, you know, kind of sustaining this for a six months to a year in the long-term is, is, is um, you know, I, I think is very minor um, compared to, because when things turn back around, because everything, obviously everything goes in cycles, that um, the company will be in a great position to take advantage of the growth when the capital markets open up, when some of your competitors have faltered, um, and when you have continued to grow your, your loyal customer following. Rule of 40. Yeah. 
that is brilliant. Sales growth and EBITDA for someone who's always looking at both historical interim and projected gross margins and EBITDA margins, that definitely resonates with me. And I understand why that's, that, that's important for uh, companies in various stages of their life cycle. Thank you for sharing that, Kevin. You have a company, an investment, a relationship in Bare Bones. Uh, can you tell us a bit about Bare Bones and how this company exemplifies this? Sure. <clears throat> so Bare Bones, it's a, uh, a bone broth brand. We make liquid and um, dry bone broth products. And I would say, yeah, in the beginning, um, the founders were, you know, bone broth is a very hot category. A lot of entrance in, into the um, into the area. Uh, they raised the seed round, and it was all about growth, growth, growth. You know, growth at all costs. And I think in the very early stages, um, realized that a lot of the basic principles um, were ignored in terms of um, it's not about you know the sales velocity in terms of what your true gross margins are um, in terms of, you know, profitability, because they became, they got to the stage where they needed to raise capital to continue to grow. So um, we actually reset the business model. And it was funny because it was almost counterintuitive again, where we actually um, purposefully um, told a, a lot of our customers that we're not reselling to them, at least at those, at those terms at those prices. So we actually stepped back to, to move forward again. So we kind of right-sized the business. And I think the general lessons that we learned is, A, the margins have to make sense. Um, B, really, really focus on um, innovation and product quality, because those are very difficult and and um, to to replicate or I guess to copy. And then the most important part was keep as many costs as variable as possible. So in terms of even today at you know over ten million dollars in sales, I mean we're talking about five employees. And we think we can double the business without hiring any more employees. Um, and but we obviously have a lot of partners, but those partners, those costs vary as the sales increase or decrease. So when you minimize your fixed costs and keep everything as variable as possible, and and you can kind of always be profitable, then um, you're not forced into making a lot of decisions, right? That capital does not force you into the decisions that you can actually consciously make decisions, um, you know, because you're not kind of bound to, to any of this, uh, any of the cost structures. Speaking of cost structures, um, employment and labor, layoffs are becoming pretty common across all industries right now. Uh, just recently, uh, Meta with 11,000 layoffs in the tech, in the tech field, um, smaller teams can still ensure profitability if managed correctly. Can you tell us a bit about right-sizing teams and how entrepreneurs should be careful to expand teams in this type of economic environment? Sure. Um, I think the reality that everyone should realize is that hiring people is an investment. Um, those people will never pay off initially in the beginning. 
just like everything else. I mean, there's very few areas where you can put a dollar in and get $2 out immediately. Um, that's one thing. And then when you're a small growing business, I think part of it is kind of realizing what your returns might be. So obviously there's returns on the sales side. If I hire a salesperson and this person costs X dollars in the first two years, what do I think um, that person will generate in sales and what person, uh, what those sales will generate in profits. So typically the way I look at it is say, is any investment, can I get a one-year payback? So let's just say this person makes a hundred thousand dollars and I know that my gross profit is 40%, but then when, when it's all said and done with all the marketing and slotting and setup and logistics that I'm making 20%, right? So I'll, so I'll look at it and say, can this person generate $500,000 in sales? Because then I'm breaking even the first year. And if that's the right person, that person is, um, is just, it's just all incremental profit, right? And there's, and there's true value creation. Um, if I look at it from the operation side, I could say, listen, is this person either going to save me uh, um, cost on margin? Can they improve my margin or actually improve my cash conversion cycle? So, for example, if um, if your business doing $10 million in sales and this person costs $100,000, if this person can save me 2% of gross margin by sourcing better ingredients or finding a better co-packer, that person has more than paid for him or herself, right? If I'm carrying around $2 million of inventory and this person can um, decrease my inventory by 20% or even 10%, right? We're talking about two to $400,000 of capital that's freed up because this person found a better supply chain. That person pays for themselves. So that's how at least, you know, I look at it and I think that um, entrepreneurs should look, you know, it's not just buying inventory, it's the investment in people, but you can calculate returns on these people. That's brilliant. My takeaway from what you just shared there, Kevin, is that diligence should be performed on the front end on an individual basis to learn about what contributions are going to be made that can be directly linked to your model in the form of a payback. Right. And it's one of those things where um, if if you make the wrong choice, and obviously everyone does, I have before as well, you know, the the discipline of, of uh, you know, I guess no one's been ever blamed for firing someone too quickly. You know, it, it's, it's one of those obviously difficult things and trying to real, uh, when you actually realize that that return is not going to happen, um, uh, that obviously those are difficult decisions to make, but you kind of need, if you want a long-term viable business, you know, you, you need to kind of execute those decisions. Tough decisions for entrepreneurs and founders to maintain control of their business, execute on the strategy, have a long-term perspective and navigate through a tougher economy. Right. And, you know, the final point on that is, you know, if, if, if an entrepreneur is looking to um, 
raise money from institutional investors that the timelines may be different, right? Institutional investors typically have a certain timeline where they need um, to, um, when the, after they invest, they need to see a return on their capital. And they, that may be different from the entrepreneur. And, and a lot of the times the entrepreneur might not have a say in that and what that timeline will be. So I think that's probably the um, um, biggest consideration that they they will need to make. And same with the lending side, right? If if an entrepreneur takes a loan from a bank or a, another financial institution, that um, it's not their decision solely on you know how the company should grow and how the how the fund should be used because they have an obligation to make payments and and pay the loan back. So I think, you know, I think a lot of this, I think they just really need to, like what you said, Justin, in terms of doing diligence, doing all the upfront work, instead of just getting capital and saying yes to the best terms or the first person or the person who gives the most money, um, you know, besides that, to really understand what am I getting myself into? Yep. All that upfront work, uh, sure to pay off for an entrepreneur. Kevin, this has been a fantastic talk. We at Food Institute and City National Bank really appreciate your time. If anybody would like to learn more, where should they go? So uh, from my team, you can um, contact me at um, kevin.park at lagoinnovation.com. So L-A-G-O innovation. Dot com. Send me an email. I'm happy to um, answer any questions. Love to see uh, companies succeed, you know, whether or not they qualify for an investment. And Justin, you've been, you've, you've been the same way, right? Obviously, a lot of companies do not fit the city national portfolio, but you've always been helpful. Um, I think, um, you know, it's just good for the industry and obviously ultimately good for the consumers at the end of the day. Yes, we are always trying to figure out the best way to support the entrepreneurs, the founders, the, the, the food and beverage teams that are trying to grow their business. Um, and if, if City National Bank is not the right fit, we always grab our friends at Lago and Kevin Park and other types of uh, support uh, financially, uh, wherever it makes sense. And for City National Bank, if if you'd like to explore more about City National Bank, you can just Google City National Bank Food and Beverage Group, and it'll take you to a website that has more details on our food and beverage lending platform and banking services. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for us this week on the Food Institute podcast. I definitely want to thank Kevin and Justin for their time and insight today, and I definitely want to thank City National Bank for sponsoring this episode. We'll catch you next time. This is Chris Campbell, signing off. Thank you.